Okay, if you have um, a Bible, would you like to turn to the book of Revelation and be finding chapter 6? If you don't have a Bible but would like to follow in a copy of one, uh, just raise a hand and one will be brought to you. Raise a hand and keep it there just for a moment or so so it can be seen and then one will be brought to you. I think it's just a couple of hands near the front. Unless I've missed another one. Okay, on a few occasions we've been looking in the book of Revelation as part of a, a series. Um, really, I suppose the aim of that series is to, is to get heaven's perspective. Revelation reveals to us heaven's perspective. Uh, we've had a great time, I hope you agree, in chapters 4 and 5. The Really, the centerpiece of the whole book, this is... Chapters 4 and 5 are a vision of heaven itself, God's presence, God on the throne, Christ worthy of all praise, and God's people gathered around him. And from that flows now a new vision that John has in chapters uh, 6 and 7, even running into chapter 8. Now, the danger with Revelation is that we miss the wood for the trees. It's important that we see... Uh, the big picture, and we don't get kind of confused when we look at small details. And therefore, what we're going to do again is read quite a large portion of Scripture so we see uh, the whole vision, this new vision, and uh, and then we'll begin to, to get into it. So Revelation chapter 6, starting at verse 1. Uh, let's go. I watched as the Lamb... Open the first of the seven seals. And then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a, in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown. And he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. And when the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to men, make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat For a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine and plague and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they'd maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe And they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. 
I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to earth as late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us. And hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I heard another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. And then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel, from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. And after this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Here we have... The next in the instalment 
of John's visions. We've had that vision, like I said, in chapter 4 and 5 of the throne in heaven, the throne of God, who's in control of all things. And um, in the right hand of him who sits on the throne is a scroll. And we looked at how the scroll contains God's plan for the whole universe and all of history. And we saw, therefore, that it would be a horrific thing if no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll, because then God's plans for the whole of the universe would never come to completion. And so that search takes place throughout the universe, throughout the earth. Is there anyone who can be found who's worthy? And initially, John is given the answer, no. But then, the Lamb, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb of God, comes to the fore. And he is worthy also to be seated on a throne, the throne of heaven, and to take the scroll and to take in his own hands, therefore, all the plans and purposes of God. And so we know that what God has planned for the world will come about. That image then led all of heaven to a glorious crescendo of majestic praise and worship. Um, to Jesus, the Lamb on the throne, uh, and to Father God as well, who's seated on the throne. An amazing scene. Two chapters that, as we saw, are the, just designed to bring about worship in us as well as we read them. And so now we're going to see what happens when each of the seals on the scroll are broken. And it's almost like bit by bit the scroll is revealed. The scroll is opened. One seal opens a certain portion, the next seal another, and so on. But, as we begin to see, in chapter 6 in particular, the contents of this scroll, we have to say that it's horrific. It's grim. This is unpleasant. This is like being invited to a birthday party. And you think, ordinarily, fantastic. That's a reason to celebrate. But this is a kind of birthday party with a difference. There's past the parcel. My favourite. But now it's like when the music stops and it's come to you and you unwrap it, even if you're not like unwrapping the last layer, you at least expect a sweetie. Um, sometimes with the sweetie, there may be, if you have played the game, and I'm sure you have, um, there may also be a forfeit. And depending on the average age of the people that you're playing with, that will kind of determine the severity of the forfeit. But on the whole, they're in themselves meant to be kind of a, a humorous little anecdote to the whole game. This, however, is like being invited to a party, only to find that as you're unwrapping the parcel, having been passed around... There are no sweeties. And not only are there no sweeties, but there are forfeits. And the forfeits would appear to be of the very worst kind. This is not obviously a cause for celebration. It's not obviously a cause for celebration to know, I need to go to the dentist. That's not like, you don't write out cards to people inviting them to a party. Yay! Seven fillings! And they're all for me. It's not, it's not good news. At least it doesn't appear to be 
good news. Chapter 6 is God revealing judgments on the earth. The, the earth, the inhabitants of the earth that way back from the garden have chosen to uh, rebel and disobey God. Here's what comes as a result. And really we could sum it up with the words that we see actually later on in chapter 7 verse 14. They, they don't, they're not here in chapter 6, but they sum it up quite well. The great tribulation. It's great, it's big, and it's tribulation. What does tribulation mean? Tribulation is to do with pressure. It's to do with being squashed and squeezed. It's to do with trouble and hardship and oppression and this is what's coming the the great tribulation the great pressure the big squeeze as it were as it were now as we read through the contents of these different seals the, the contents of the scroll as each seal is broken we can kind of think well if we think back if we try and imagine what it would have been like say for people in the church in Thyatira or the church in Smyrna or the church in Pergamum, what would it would have been like? Would they have understood something of what was contained in these seals? Yeah, I think they would have done. As we look through the contents of the seal, we see, well, number one is to do with conquest. The first seal is broken. The first horse of the apocalypse comes forward, and what's its characteristic? Its characteristic is conquest. In fact, it's completely bent on conquest. This is what can happen either between neighbours or between nations. Well, basically, there's a desire to get ahead at someone else's expense. The desire to succeed by squashing someone else, by oppressing someone else. Do you think that those who were first hearing the book of Revelation knew something about that? Well, I think they probably did. I think they were experiencing some measure of of hardship, they would be aware of what persecution meant. They would be aware of the next seal being broken. The second seal seems to be to do with, uh, to do with war, uh, and to do with conflict. There's this horse that comes forward. It's a fiery red one. It doesn't take too much imagination to think, well, perhaps the color there indicates the nature of this conflict. There's, there's bloodshed. There's, there's warfare going on. It's like peace is removed and so people slay each other. Um, which again is what we see through history. I think those hearing Revelation for the very first time would have known something about that. I think ever since then, well, humanity knows something of, of warfare. We can think back to things like the Rwandan genocide in 1994, where uh, two tribes had simmering tensions for any number of years and it's almost a certain point in time came and it was as if peace got removed and suddenly you have two tribes who had uneasily coexisted. Uh, the Hutus and the Tutsis, suddenly all restraint was thrown off and it's estimated that uh, 800,000 people lost their lives um, in that conflict. Famine comes in at number three, um, or economic hardship. It would appear from uh, the third seal being broken with this black horse riding forth. 
with the rider holding a pair of scales in his hand, that everyday commodities have become really scarce. And so the prices have gone through the roof. And it's as if, at this point, people working, earning a hard day's wage, that wage will just about buy what they need in order to survive. It's that kind of idea. One person with one wage can buy for one day enough food to eat for that day. And if they've got family, they can't buy, uh, in this situation, they can't buy wheat. Instead, they buy barley, which um, the quality of which is less. So you can buy a little bit more for your money, and therefore you've got a little bit more to share around if you've got a family to support. Economic hardship. Yeah, when we were reading back through the prophetic messages to the seven different churches earlier in the book of Revelation, we get the church in Smyrna being told, look, I know your poverty. I know what, I know what you're going through. I know actually you're, you're really rich, but there's that church and they are hard pressed in terms of poverty. They knew something about that. I think also we know something about that today. We're running a food bank because there's need for a food bank and reading uh, the news, you kind of get the impression that the need is on the rise. People who, yeah, might be earning a hard day's wage, but it's not quite stretching far enough when the washing machine breaks or when something else goes wrong because of what's happened to prices. And so, well, we want to do all we can to support people who are genuinely in crisis. So, yep, when Revelation was first read, People would have understood something of that. They would have, un- we understand something of that today. It goes on. The fourth horse is, um, or the fourth seal being broken releases the fourth horse, the pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. It's like this horse kind of combines the previous three. Conquest, warfare, famine, or I'm going to bundle you all up in death. Um, and that horse is, is, is given a certain amount of, of power. So we see in this that yes, when we think about the great tribulation, what that's talking about is not just a couple of years before Jesus comes again. It's talking about this whole period of time in which we live ever since Jesus rose to heaven. After his death and resurrection, he rose to heaven, seated on a throne. The scroll gets opened. These are the sorts of things that characterize life on planet Earth before Christ comes again. The fifth seal opens. The first four kind of reveal something of what's happening on the Earth. The fifth seal and the sixth as well, the sixth as well reveals something that's happening in heaven. And the, the fifth seal being broken gives us insight into these uh, all, all the martyrs, all those who've died for their faith, um, as it were, currently under the protection of uh, of God's uh, God's altar in heaven. But they're crying out, "How long? How long? Not until we get vengeance, but how long until justice is done? How long until everything is brought right?" How long until this whole system with all its mess and with all its conflict, with all its warfare and with all its death is actually brought to a God-honoring conclusion? How long, oh Lord, how long are we going to have to wait? And again, all through the ages, there have been martyrs from Acts chapter 7 
There's Stephen. In the book of Revelation, we've read of Antipas. You might remember us also um, talking about um, Polycarp, who was the bishop of Smyrna in the very early days um, after uh, Revelation was written. You might think during the Second World War, the, the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was killed by the Nazis uh, for his faith. You might think of Jim Elliot, a, uh, an American missionary in the 1950s who went to the Wadoni people in Ecuador in, and, was, and was killed in his attempt to, to, reach the, uh, to spread the gospel. Martin Luther King, black civil rights um, activist in America who, from his faith, was wanting through uh, pacifism to lead to a better place in that nation. All died for their faith. So every age knows something of these seals. But also, there is a sense in which there's a building of pressure. The pressure is intensifying. And so just before Christ returns, it is like... Well, it's like... You know, if the weather's been particularly balmy, and you're out and about, and it just feels incredibly close. It's, maybe it's been hot for a few days, but it's almost like the pressure has been, has been building. You can just feel the closeness in the atmosphere, and you think, this has got to break. There, there needs to be something to deal with this. There needs to be a big, massive thunderstorm just to bring some peace. Um, it's almost like that, this, this growing sense of, of pressure. Something's got to happen here. This is, this is building up and building up and building up. And so we get to the sixth seal. And with the sixth seal, it's like the whole universe is being shaken to its very foundations. It's like the sky is being ripped and rolled up. It's this, well, we, we read about what happens to uh, the sun turns black. There's a great earthquake. Uh, stars in the sky fell to earth. The whole moon turned blood red. Um, the sky receded like a scroll, rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. This is, again, this is John's use of apocalyptic language, so we don't know. It's not necessarily taking a photo of the future, saying this is exactly what will happen. It's more using very dramatic images, very vivid language to communicate what's happening. But of course, we know something of that already. We know something of, of earthquakes, not necessarily particularly in this nation. But we know something of all of creation just groaning out. It's like the martyrs are saying, how long? How long, O Lord? And then it's like all of creation is just calling out, oh, how long? We're, we're groaning, we're yearning for the day when we're going to be released from the bondage and decay we've been put under. Growing tension. The whole universe being shaken. So, Bearing in mind all of chapter 6, what should our response be? How do we respond? How do we react to, to reading through these things? How do we feel about it? Why is this actually here? Why are we being told this? Why was John given this vision? These can be all questions in our mind. And it's important that we give them proper consideration. Because if we just took chapter 6... And if we, like I say, we can miss the wood for the trees. If we just zoom in on the trees, what can happen is we get very fearful. Seeing these trees and maybe just wondering, are they about to kind of fall down and squash us? We can be tempted, we can be drawn, we can be kind of enticed almost into a very fearful mindset. Worry about the future. 
how things are going to work out in the whole world. How, how, how will our lives work out in the context of it all? Worry, fear, anxiety, uncomfortable, a precious building. And, well, can't we just read something a little bit more happy? We will do in a moment. <laughs> but it's important that we see that scripture is not written for us to be led into fear. And that's very clearly the case in this. You see, for those reading this for the first time, and for us as well, in fact, this is not new teaching. This is not some, in a sense, well, it is a bizarre vision, but it's not like some bizarre vision that John has just came up with in his own mind because he's had something dodgy for breakfast that morning and he's having a bit of a hallucination. Now, this is very clearly grounded. All of this teaching is very clearly grounded, A, in what Jesus himself predicted, and you can read about that through looking at chapter like Mark chapter 13. Um, it's also clearly the teaching of the Old Testament. And so we see that, for example, uh, in the book of Joel. And you're all probably going to get there quicker than me. Um, in Joel chapter 2. And hopefully it will come up on the screen as well. I might end up just reading it from there at this rate. No. <laughs> Keep going. It's one of those little ones, isn't it? I should have put a mark in there beforehand. Hey, Joel chapter 2. Okay, we'll stick with that. Verse 30. Can we have verse 30, please, Steve? <laughs> I promise you it's in there as well. Verse 30. <laughs> this is what the prophet Joel says. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Well, again, so this is clearly an expectation was being placed by um, the prophets in the Old Testament. So this is what believers were expecting. It's not, it's not new stuff. And it's also before anyone had watched Endless episodes of Star Trek, um, because that's more a 20th century thing um, than an Old Testament prophecy thing. Um, you may have spotted that. Uh, any Trekkies around, actually? I w- I'm not going to lambast it completely, so you're safe. Um, the whole thing with Star Trek, just to forgive the brief sidetrack into uh, uh, science fiction, um, the whole thing with Star Trek, the premise of it is... Quite arrogant, really, in a way. It goes like this. Humanity has solved all its own problems. The earth is a perfect haven of peace and tranquility. Every conflict has been resolved. Technology has done wonders. um, So that even by wearing this funny little hairband over the eyes, someone can see. Um, That's the kind of gist of of Star Star Trek. And therefore, with the aid of incredible mind-boggling technology, because we've solved all of our own problems, uh, we need to boldly go to find other people's intergalactic meddling, I think it's called. We need to go and find alien races because we can help them (laughs) because our problems are fine. That is maybe an overly optimistic 20th century hope and dream for the future. It's never been a biblical one. Um, as uh, as Joel writes about there, but the Bible is not trying to scare us. It's take, it, it teaches us about the things that will take place, that have taken place, are taking place, and will taking place will take place in the future. Why is it doing that? 
Well, let's have a look at another place. Let's have a look. And I found this one, you'll be glad to know. Um, Isaiah chapter 54. Let's look there. Again, it contains some similarity with what we've just read in Isaiah. No, in Revelation chapter 6. Um, and it says this in Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 10. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. It's like I'm giving you some insight into what's going to happen in the future. Not so that you fear. Not so that you panic. Not so that you run around saying, where's God? So that you know, no, this there are things that are going to happen this is not a, going to be a comfortable ride. There's this sense of pressure building. You know something about it already. And before Christ comes, there'll be certain things that get worse. And though we don't know exactly what will happen, we know that even creation itself, it's going to be clear, is breaking up, is crying out, it's being kind of rolled up, it's coming to the end, as it were. The tension's mounting. But what's God saying is, no, don't, don't fear My purpose in this is not that you're terrified. It's my purpose in this is that you might still know that I am God. It's that you might still know my covenant of undying love. It's that you might still know that I'm on the throne. That's why it's incredibly important that we move on to chapter 7 as well. But let's just pause here in chapter 6 for a moment longer. Because even in chapter 6, we see any number of indications that God, mysteriously, in ways that we can't understand or comprehend because his ways are so far above ours, our one true God who is on the throne is in control of everything that we've just read in chapter 6. Firstly, we see that because it's the Lamb who is opening the seals. It's the Lamb of God who is worthy to open the seals. He's He is the one who's opening things up. That's not an action of chaos, of complete hazardous chaos. The lamb is opening these things up. Each living creature that we've seen before gathered around the throne, ready to do God's bidding. The living creatures are saying, come, as each of those four horsemen ride out. They're the ones kind of giving the command. And the riders of those horses, well, they are given power in some way. So the power is not innately theirs. They are given power. We see that in a few places. But it's important to see as well that God is setting the limits. God decides the boundaries. And so we see even the the fourth horse, which kind of seems to combine all the previous three as well, uh, death and Hades, they were given power, then says intriguingly, over a fourth of the earth. So yeah, this is not pleasant, this is grim, this is the great tribulation. But God has determined that that rider of that horse has power over a fourth of the earth. There's limits set in place. This is not complete chaos This is God still mysteriously exerting his control and his plan. We see when the martyrs, they're crying out, how long, O Lord? How long do we have to wait? The answer that comes back is, I'm not sure. We're just going to have to see how this one rides out. Uh, Because the end, it's not clear to me. 
That isn't God's response. God's response is, you do, you need to wait a little bit longer. This is working out according to my plan. Here, in the meantime, wear white robes. And white robes often signify kind of having been purified, um, as we might see a little bit later on. But the color white uh, also symbolizes victory in the ancient world, which is strange because we might think of a white flag meaning surrender and defeat. But here it's talking about victory. Those who overcome are clothed in white. They have been victorious. Um, And that's what's kind of going on here. It looks like from an earthly point of view, you've lost. You've been defeated because you've been killed for your faith. God's saying, just wait a little bit longer. Actually, what's happened to you is demonstrating victory and it will be revealed. There's a definite plan with a definite timing and I'm working it through. So we can see elements of God's control, God's power, God's oversight over all of history. Still, a question can arise, and it does, in the last few words of verse 17. Who can stand? Who can stand? This may well be all planned and coordinated by the control room of heaven with God seated on the throne, he's doing everything in accordance to his purpose and his will. Nothing happens that's outside his sovereign control. He is God. And we know that to be true. But the question arises, who can stand? How can we know that we will be able to stand firm until the very end? How do we know that our faith won't give way? How do we know that we will reach the right destination? Because the journey looks so uncertain from a human perspective. It looks so uncomfortable. There's a lot of turbulence. Are we going to make it? Are we going to get to the right destination? And it's because of that question. And it's because of that question that can be in our own hearts as well. It's because we can be coerced, if you like, into a response of fear when we see stuff happening in the world around us, that we have this chapter as well. Because you will notice that there are seven seals, but we've only heard six of them. And it's like the tension has been building, 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 and then it's like the director of a movie has just said, cut. Okay, We haven't yet got to the seventh seal. The drama, we're kind of poised on this moment when Christ is about to return. This kind of horrific moment when all of creation is crying out and people who have been rebelling against God and not been following God would rather the hills and the mountains buried them to hide them from God. That's This, this incredible, horrific scene is developing. How's it all going to work out? Well, we're going to see in, in, in the seventh seal, but it's almost like, yeah, the director of the film just says, cut, right. Because God wants to take his people, take his church, kind of like for a time out. Time out. Let's have some time because I need to explain some things to you. I need to show you some stuff. There is great tribulation. The early church knew tribulation. The church through every age has known tribulation. The church today knows trouble. It will know great things as well, like people 
um, testifying to healing, people getting saved, and seeing God do miracles and bring about his kingdom in the here and now, but that's still mixed with trouble, hardship, pressure, things that would seek to squash the church. And so here is God almost giving us a timeout, an aside. In fact, this is a pattern that repeats through other visions in the book. We see six of something happen, six trumpets or whatever, um, and then God just wants to take his people aside, almost like for a quiet personal word. I don't want you to get the wrong idea in all of this. Let's have a look at chapter 7. Chapter 7 shows us that even with all of this great tribulation, there is even greater protection for the people of God. And we're just going to look through a variety of ways in which that protection is brought out and what that protection means. And again, it's so wonderful reading through Revelation to come across so many bizarre, seemingly bizarre symbols. First of all, right at the start of chapter 7, the four winds are held back. The four winds of the earth, the four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds. We've read about those four horsemen who are about to ride out or who are kind of riding out, bringing all of this hardship and difficulty. It's almost like God said, well, again, I'm controlling this. Right, hold them back. Hold back these four messengers, these four winds, until what? Until a seal has been placed on the forehead of all the servants of our God. This is something that um, that Paul writes about in a couple of places. And one of those places is 2 Corinthians and chapter 1. We read there in verse, well, reading from verse 21, 2 Corinthians 1 verse 21. Uh, now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. And again, there's the issue. How do we know we're going to stand firm? Well, God makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. On the, on the forehead, as it were, symbolically speaking, of every person who is in Christ, God has put like a stamp, a mark, a mark of ownership and a mark of protection. It's like saying, this one is sealed. This one belongs to me. This one is protected. So what does it mean? God's great protection it means we're, we're sealed. It means there's actually a guarantee. The guarantee of what's to come. A guarantee of God's protection. We see another fascinating uh, symbol. Because then John hears the number of all those who were sealed. And it was 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. And again, this is clearly symbolic. Because my expectation, and I think this is biblical, is that there will be more people in heaven enjoying God's salvation and his very presence than there were per day going to the Olympics. Um, I think heaven will be a bigger party than that. Um, so I don't think this is talking about a literal number. 144,000 people can expect to be saved and sealed 
and protected. They're God's people. And you might know there are any number of views that haven't seen the wood for the trees and have then just gone down the most unhelpful interpretations of this passage. It's clearly symbolic as well, because when we get the list of the tribes, the 12 tribes, all with 12,000 people sealed in them, if you were to compare that to the lists of the tribes in other places, you might see, actually, there are some differences. In this list, there is no place for the tribe of Dan. Uh, oh dear. Uh, no. <laughs> Uh, Because the tribe of Dan had given themselves over to idolatry. And so they weren't included here. You might see as well that Joseph is included. The tribe of Joseph. Joseph had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And they were kind of known as the half-tribes. The half-tribe of Manasseh and the half-tribe of Ephraim. But what we see here in this list is Joseph gets mentioned and Manasseh. Well, you'd expect it to be Manasseh and Ephraim or just Joseph. But it's Joseph and Manasseh. So it's clearly a symbolic way of describing all of God's people. Not just Israelites who in faith were looking forward to the day when Christ came. But all of us who have the same hope. Well what's the message here then? All God's people are going to be sealed. What does that mean? Well it means all God's people are secure. Not just in the future But right now, it means the complete number, the full number of God's people will be kept safe. You know, whatever the journey involves, whatever the turbulence might involve, however bumpy a ride it might be, at some points, the destination is guaranteed. And we're going to land at the right airport. We don't know what our journeys would involve. But we do know that we are secure in God. It doesn't mean that we're going to avoid, be spared from any kind of trouble. Um, as Isaiah points out again in Isaiah 43 um, and verse 1, reading from there. But now, this is what the Lord says, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, I've redeemed you. I've summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So it's the guarantee of God's very presence with us. We're secure. Not because the road is always going to be perfectly smooth. But it's interesting, just one aspect of Ginny's uh, prophetic word earlier on was that sense of, yes, I'm, I'm the God of the suddenly. I'm the God who steps in in a certain moment to bring breakthrough, bring a demonstration of power. I'm also the God, as it were, who, who never slumbers and sleeps. I'm with you now and always. You might not feel very secure in your lot in life right now. If you're in Christ, you are secure. Because Christ, by giving us his Holy Spirit, guarantees that destiny, that destination. It's sure, it's certain, it's glorious. It's it's future, we will know it. There might in glorious eternity we might feel more happy than we do right now, but we won't be more secure 
than we are right now in God's hands. Because no one can be plucked out of God's hands. So God's people are protected. They're sealed. They're secure. The fact that that 144,000 is symbolic is clearly um, shown again. In in verse 9 we see John says, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people and language. This is not just about... um, Jew, the Jewish people, this is not just about a certain group of 144,000. This is a great multitude that would be difficult or impossible for any of us to count from every tribe, international group. And they are before, uh, before the throne. Just look, how are they described? Well, they're standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They too are wearing white robes and they're holding palm branches in their hands. Well, that's a little bit strange. Palm branches, what, what are they about? Well, I think maybe they are the ancient equivalent of party poppers. And just... <laughs> um, this is showing us that God's people are celebrating. God's people are in what the writer of the Hebrews calls... Joyful assembly, along with all the angels worshipping God, they are experiencing unrestrained, unbridled joy. They've experienced much of what the Great Tribulation could throw at them. But it says later on, they've come out of the Great Tribulation. Now, they are not the walking wounded anymore. In glory... They are the great multitude who are before the throne of God, enjoying his very presence and having a party. There's nothing there that is dampening their experience of God. So the sixth seal has just been opened in this vision. The, the tension is mounting. How, who can stand? How are we going to get through this? I guarantee you are going to get through this. And when you get through this, this is what you'll be experiencing. This is what you'll be knowing in fullness, without restraint, without limit, without problem, without pressure, without strife. This is your destiny. Protected, sealed, secure, and satisfied. Imagine, there's nothing to dampen our appreciation of God. There are things in this life and in this world that challenge our appreciation of God because we deal with mysterious things that belong in this realm which is itself groaning and yearning to be set free. There are mysteries that, damp- that can dampen our appreciation of God now. There will be nothing then. We will be fully satisfied. This great multitude is enjoying incredible closeness to the very throne of God and to the Lamb of God. That means that they are totally preoccupied and focused with worshipping Him and enjoying God who sits on the throne. There's, there's no obstacle whatsoever um, if there is a back view, 
There's no restricted view. There's just a sense of we're God's people, we're protected, and we're right here. It doesn't get better than this. Totally satisfied. And therefore the focus is completely just worship and wonder, enjoyment of God, and also a readiness to serve. The angels are gathered round close to the throne. They're ready to serve and do God's bidding. We have been purchased by the blood of Jesus so that we too can serve God in his kingdom. It's like we too, in eternity, gathered close to the throne so that we can serve him. We're not called to be redundant and twiddle our thumbs. There's stuff that God's got in store. There's purpose and plans, as we've seen before. That's our response to worship and to serve, to love. Total preoccupation with him who's on the throne. But I want you to see, before we move on to the seventh seal, what God's response is to us. Again, in this great theme of God's protection for his people. What is the response of the Lamb of God who sits on the throne? Well, he does this. He spreads his tent over them. He spreads his tent over us. Describes in verse 17 how the Lamb who is at the center of the throne, remember the Lamb who is at the center of the throne, is the one who is worthy, totally glorious, totally worthy of all praise. He's our preoccupation. What's the Lamb of God doing? He's spreading his tent over us. What is he doing? He's being our shepherd. He's providing. He's caring. He is loving. Like a shepherd who cares for his sheep, speaking to us, providing for us. And so the people of God are sealed. They're secure. They're satisfied. They're also sheltered. They're also enjoying this intimate closeness with Jesus, which then is rightly described in this way. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. Nor, and also it says right at the end there that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It's not like they've just got out of the great tribulation, but it's still kind of just, that's what's marking them. That's what's just dominating the atmosphere of heaven. Oh, it was so tough. I can't believe, listen, when we get there, we will no longer be preoccupied with the troubles that this world may have involved. When we get there, every tear gets wiped away. That's how profound the care of the Lamb of God who sits on the throne is. That's what it's like to be shepherded by God in eternity. Every tear is wiped away. When we get to the seventh seal, having looked at the great tribulation and God's great protection or even greater protection... When we get to the seventh seal, we kind of expect, right, this is where the fireworks really kick off. This is, surely this is going to be the real moment of climax. The tension was building, the sixth seal was open, the whole of the universe was just aching, ready for this moment. It's building up, it's building up, it's building up to the climax. What happens? Well, it kind of seems like an anticlimax. The tension was mounting and the whole of history was poised on the brink of Christ's return. What happens now? A great silence. What's that about? That silence, I think, is best understood as awestruck wonder and breathtaking peace that heaven experiences 
right at that point. You know, the tension, it's been building up, building up, building up. But when the seventh seal is opened, when God's full plan is revealed, there's no struggle, there's no battle, there's no debate, there's no protest, there's no resistance. At the exact moment that he chooses, God sends his son. Yes, with judgment for his enemies, but also with eternal blessings for his people. So heaven's response is to recognize the significance of that moment. This is what all of history has been waiting for. And the angels are witnessing the Lord Jesus as he stands up from the throne to come again and to bring everything to its glorious conclusion. All of history waiting for this moment. And it's as though the angels decide, we're just going to let this soak in. For about 30 minutes or so, we're not going to say a word because we just want to soak in and enjoy, fully register. God has come. The one who was, who is, and is to come has just come. The kingdom is here in its full. So in every age, the church knows something of suffering. The church knows something of great tribulation, of trouble, of hardship. God's judgment's being revealed on the earth. But the church is also taken aside by the Lord, reminded in a glorious time out of God's greater protection, rekindling our hope in a glorious future. This is what it means to have heaven's perspective. It's not a glib, I'm sure everything will work out just fine. No, there will be some times when things don't work out just fine from our perspective. After all, John is in prison as he's writing this. Church in Smyrna, experiencing poverty. In Pergamum, Antipas was martyred. And others are expected to be. Today, City Church Sheffield, we've got our share of encouragements and uh, things to celebrate. We also have, no more notes, um, we also have a share, a measure of vulnerability and suffering and heartache. And I feel that the Lord would want to take us aside this morning and say, when you read chapter 6, read chapter 7 as well. When you see what's going on on the earth, pay attention to heaven as well. As Neil was sharing when he came forward, it's like the world is there, but we're not in a sense ignoring it, but it's at our back. What's our focus? Our focus is the lamb who sits on the throne. What's our focus, even when we're having to consider and face up to painful facts on the earth? Well, what's our focus? Our focus is our wonderful saviour and all that's to come. Whilst our focus is our security in God's hands right now. And it means there might be waters to go through, fires to run through, and all the rest of it. Moments where, yet we're not immune from trouble, and we're not immune from hardship. But the Lord Jesus wants to say to us, do not fear. Don't be troubled. I know that some of you are troubled. I know that some of you have hearts that are weighed down. 
And you're not to feel beaten up by circumstances. You're not to feel, I shouldn't feel like that. I shouldn't, I shouldn't be acknowledging that there is hard things. I'm not to just kind of be sticking my fingers in my ears and pretending that everything on the earth is fine. No, we're called to live real lives of honesty here on the earth. But this is written that we might have heaven's perspective. And heaven's perspective comes to us and it reassures us of God's wonderful protection. I've got you. You're secure. In God, I will enable I will enable you to stand and to stand firm. And I will enable you to worship me. I'm, I'm showing you even what that heavenly worship look, looks like. It's completely satisfied. Sometimes as we sing, there's no minor key. There's no minor key in glory. There might be now. But we look forward to a day of eternal glory without the minor key. When we will lift up our hands, clothed in white, when we will pop every party popper, wave every palm branch, because every tear has been wiped away. How profound is God's care and his love for his people that he's able to do that? Let's resolve today that whilst we are in the world, we are not going to be focused on the world. Let's resolve today that we will not allow our hearts to be troubled as if God is not in control. But whilst in the world, we will look to our Saviour, we will look to the glory that is to come, and we can still now give thanks with joy because of what he has done for us. Let's pray.